you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. I suppose first I should say, welcome back to my first episode for way too long. I tend to get in a seasonal funk in December, and this year it lasted a bit longer than usual. This, along with the fact that I was being a bit of a completionist with the research, made this one take even longer. But it's a case and a topic I find very interesting. A different sort of crime for me, and I have my reasons for why this story in particular interests me, which I'll get into later. Let's just get through the story first. It's back to Pennsylvania again for the tale of John Frankford, notorious thief, and as the papers had it, quote, a champion jailbreaker. John Frankford's run-ins with the law began early. In March of 1854, aged only 15 or 16, he was arrested for stealing copper scrap from one of the local foundries. A new prison building on East King Street had opened in 1851, replacing the old one on the site of today's Fulton Opera House, the story of the Paxton Boys and the Massacre of the Conestoga Indians, the most notorious incident in the history of the older prison, was discussed in episode 38. John was sent to Lancaster County Prison, the first of many visits. On March 11th, he attempted to escape, having somehow gained access to the window near the ceiling allowing light and fresh air into his cell, but when he finally managed to worm his way out, he tumbled to the ground and broke his leg. It's unclear for how long Frankfurt was imprisoned, but at any rate, he was out the next month. And promptly upon his release, he was again arrested, this time for stealing some brass casings from the machine shop of I&D Fellenbaum, adjacent to the Lancaster Locomotive Works. However, the indictment contained a flaw in that it listed the owner of the casings as David Fellenbaum, while they were actually property of the company, and thus co-owned by David and his brother Isaac. With it unclear as to who exactly Frankfurt was stealing from, he was declared to technically be not guilty. The piece in the newspapers on April 25, 1854, concluded with a statement that, quote, The court discharged John with good advice, which he will not soon forget. Apparently, though, That good advice didn't take. By age 18 or 19, in August of 1857, he was again arrested, this time on several charges. A quantity of butter and milk had been stolen from the farm of a Mr. Tomlinson. A William Shrem was originally apprehended by Mr. Tomlinson, 
and he spilled the beans that he, you Cosgrove, and John Frankford had broken into the spring house. He and Cosgrove stole the items, with, at least according to Shrem, Frankford advising the other two not to do it. On this basis, Frankford's attorney, Jacob Amwake, argued he ought not be charged, but Tomlinson's attorney, Oliver Dickey, argued that he should. The same day, Frankford was also charged with stealing a buffalo robe, an old term for a fur coat essentially, belonging to a Mr. Hershey at Cooper's Hotel on the corner of West King and Market Streets. This he attempted to sell to Amos Funk at the Merrimack House Hotel. But Funk suspected the coat had been stolen and refused. He also was charged with stealing another coat from Dr. John Attlee. He was was to later admit stealing Hershey's coat, but said that his brother had stolen Dr. Attlee's. John, who had but recently married Irish immigrant Anna Jane Cunningham, was sentenced to six months per indictment, or 18 months total, to be served at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. The newspaper accounts of the trial concluded, quote, He expressed his determination, if he lived out his term, to make amends for the past. He began his sentence on August 26, 1857. But like earlier, his determination came to naught. In January of 1860, at which time he can't have been out of Eastern State for very long, John Frankford was once again in court. This time he faced indictments for stealing three rifles, two shotguns, and other gun-related paraphernalia from the shops of Jacob Fordney and Henry Lehman on October 26, 1859. These his brother Edward later found in a stovepipe at the Frankfurt home. John confessed that he and Hugh Cosgrove, who had been charged with him in the butter robbery and who was his brother-in-law, were drunk and broke into Lehman's shop to sleep. The court determined that Frankfurt had stolen the guns from Fordney's shop and that it had been Cosgrove who took the guns from Lehman's. Frankfurt was sentenced to nine months in Lancaster County Prison. On the night of July 11, 1861, as a freight train made its way across the railroad crossing over the Conestoga River, John Frankfurt entered one of the cars with false keys and pushed four large bags of coffee into the nearby woods. The watchman at the Conestoga crossing said he saw Frankfurt driving a cart back in towards Lancaster at about 2 a.m. On the morning of July 12th, he attempted to sell the four large bags of coffee, nearly 650 pounds altogether, to Philip Shrum, a Lancaster grocer. Shrum bought two bags of the coffee from Frankfurt, who then cajoled him into taking the other two as well, free of charge. But Shrum had his suspicions, and I presume Frankfurt's being a well-known criminal about town by this point probably had something to do with it. He called for the police, who quickly arrested Frankfurt. Shrum turned over the coffee, and the bags sat in the mayor's office for a time until authorities determined to whom they belonged. The product had been sent out by a company in Philadelphia and had been bound for Pittsburgh. The defense argued that while the markings on the bags had been identified by the Philadelphia firm, it couldn't be proven that the coffee in question hadn't made it to Pittsburgh or that the bags were obtained illegally, though they had been taken by Frankfurt. On January 21, 1862, he was sentenced on three counts of larceny for the coffee itself and for the horse and wagon he used to pick up the goods, which likewise had been stolen. For this, 
He was sentenced to Lancaster County Prison for five years and three months. But on September 29, 1863, Frankford, along with two other thieves named William Beck and William Dorwart, escaped jail. He seems to have opted to join the army to evade capture, because in September of 1863, he enlisted in the 3rd Maryland Cavalry, or Bradford Dragoons. The 3rd Maryland later shipped out to carry out military operations in Alabama and Louisiana. Presumably, he didn't find that climate to his liking, because he soon moved to Purnell's Legion of the Maryland Infantry. He was wounded on August 21, 1864. This was most likely on the final day of the Battle of Weldon Railroad, part of the Union siege of Petersburg, Virginia. Records seem to indicate that he remained in the army for some time, not leaving until June of 1866. On March 4, 1868, he was recaptured. While imprisoned, he and another thief, 16-year-old Samuel Hambright, were both part of the prison workforce making cigars. They were usually left in the cell alone while they worked. Cell 4, which doubled as a cigar-making shop, was accessed from the prison yard. The entry to the cell had two doors, an outer one, which could be locked by the guards, and an inner wooden iron one, which could be bolted shut. On September 23, 1869, Frankfurt and Hambright managed to remove the screws securing the sheet of iron to the inner door. This done, the iron sheet was moved about 15 inches to the side, exposing the plain wood. They covered this area to disguise it, and painstakingly they used a razor to cut through the two-inch thick wooden planks. Once they managed to cut a hole big enough to squeeze through, they moved into the space between the doors. They must have had help from either another prisoner or a crooked guard, because the lock on the outer door had been picked, and a string attached and fed through the door in such a way that it could be pulled and the door easily opened. It later was also determined that the tools that the two used to effect their escape were contraband and had been smuggled into the prison. Frankfurt and Hambright had fashioned a makeshift grappling hook, which they used to scale the wall once they had gained access to the jail yard. By the end of October, a robbery was committed at the depot of the Pennsylvania Railroad in Pittsburgh. A freight car had been broken into, and nearly $5,000 worth of cargo stolen. A railroad official named Nick Creighton inquired around and managed to determine that two men had rented a house on Liberty Street in the latter part of October and had been seen conveying a large number of crates inside around the time of the depot robbery. They then abandoned the house shortly after. McCrayton investigated the house and found that the crates were, indeed, those missing from the train, but there was no sign of whatever goods had been in the boxes. There were, fur there were no further leads in the railroad robbery for several days until a man was tracked down who had purchased some of the stolen goods. He said that the two men had gone on to Chicago to sell the remainder of the goods. Going to Chicago, McCrayton received information indicating that at least one of the men was from Lancaster. On December 14th, John Hipple, watchman at the railroad depot in Harrisburg, discovered that the, car, the door of car 808 was unlocked. Opening it, he found two men apparently in the midst of committing a robbery. Hipple closed and locked the door to hold the men, and the dispatcher, a man named Get, unlocked the car and with Hipple conveyed the men to jail. The men proved to be John Frankfurt and Samuel Hambright, and were also identified as the robbers of the Pittsburgh train. 
On December 20th, they were sent to Pittsburgh for trial. A brother-in-law of John Frankford's, named David Beard, married to Anna Cunningham's sister, was also arrested under suspicion of being implicated in the robbery, though to be fair there was practically no real evidence to suggest this. Only a letter in his possession addressed to a John Rice, who had been staying there at his address. The letter was from a bank in Chicago, in connection with the goods sold there. And though John Rice was an alias of John Frankford, nothing alluded to any real role in the robbery, and Beard was released. On January 4, 1870, the two were jailed in Pittsburgh awaiting trial. Not having been placed on trial yet, Frankford resolved to make his escape from the prison. He had been placed in a cell which had been reinforced with iron plates affixed to the ceiling. First, he attempted to procure a vial of acid with which to weaken the rivets holding the iron plates in place, but this was discovered. In the early hours of the morning of March 1st, another attempt was made, and he managed to loosen the rivets enough so that he could use a knife, a file, or some other tool to cut the heads off. He and his cellmate, another thief named John Reddy, then got an iron slat from the bed frame and wedged it into the space created by the loosened iron. They used this lever to bend the iron plate enough that they were able to climb up and into the space between the iron and the roof proper. With knives they cut holes, got themselves onto the roof, and slid down into the jail yard. Frankfurt and Reddy were not recaptured until May 5th, when at least John Frankfurt was found in a cell was found in a cell in the city jail in Cincinnati, Ohio. He was taken back to Pittsburgh to finally stand trial for the railroad robbery. Frankford told a Pittsburgh Post reporter that it was John Reddy who first brought up the prospect of a jailbreak, but that he ignored the man who he felt was a spy. At some point, he seemed to have come around to believing that he genuinely wished to escape, and the plan was hatched. He cut notches in the blade of a table knife, creating a makeshift saw. It was with this tool that he managed to cut the heads off the rivets over a period of almost three weeks. After escaping, the two made their way to Sewickley, where they hopped a train. Frankford said that though he didn't want to, due to press coverage of their escape and fear that they would be recognized, Reddy insisted that they enter the town of Alliance, Ohio. It seems the suspicion about his cellmate resurfaced, and the two parted ways. He eventually stopped at the Louisville house in Kentucky, where he got a, he got a room under the name Alexander Ford. At some point, he seems to have stolen some cloth from a German salesman, although of course he frames it as a big misunderstanding. Warden Scandrit of the Pittsburgh jail arrived soon after to retrieve the escaped convict. During the interview between the reporter and the robber, he reiterated several times that, quote, he would not have left our jail had it not been that he was persuaded by Reddy. Then, probably rightly, the reporter observes, this in the face of Frankfurt's records as a jailbreaker, we are not prepared to believe. The man who has escaped from four jails and three penitentiaries would not require much persuasion in a matter involving its liberty. I should mention at this point that many of the news stories assert that he had broken out of Eastern State Penitentiary when he was there, which is of course false, that being one of the few jail sentences he actually served the entirety of. Mention is also made in many accounts that he escaped from Ohio State Penitentiary, but again, I can't find any confirmation of that. 
It seems in hindsight that his career as a jailbreaker might have been a little bit overstated by the by the press, and an effort was made to make him out to be a new Jack Shepherd, as he was called, referring to the 18th century English convict similarly famous for his escapes from prison. It's unclear whatever became of John Reddy after he was left in alliance. On June 18th, a man named John Quinn was brought into Toombs Police Court in New York City, accused of stealing $30 from a Thomas Wilson. A friend of Quinn's, named John Reddy, threatened, to, threatened Wilson to get him to drop the charges, and when he refused, he grabbed Wilson by the throat and began to beat him. For this, Reddy was in turn jailed. I'm uncertain whether this is the same John Reddy or not. But back in Pittsburgh, on June 13th, John Frankfurt and Samuel Hambright were finally tried for the robbery of the train. Both pled guilty. Hambright was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment at the Allegheny County Workhouse and cleared of two of the four indictments against him. Frankfurt, meanwhile, was likewise cleared of two indictments and sentenced to four years in jail. They had apparently been swayed by the testimony of Mary Ann Hambright, Samuel's mother, who, was set, who had said that her son, now aged 18, could barely read or write, and that he had, quote, been led astray by elder persons. Frankfurt gave testimony in which he said that the charges against him were false ones and emphasized his time in the army. Presumably, he didn't mention the fact that he was in the army to avoid being recaptured and sent back to jail. Frankfurt served out his entire sentence in Pittsburgh and returned to Lancaster. On May 23, 1874, he was arrested again. A few days before, he had pawned a watch to a Mrs. Frecht who lived on Cemetery Street for $15. She placed the watch in her trunk. On the 23rd, Mrs. Frecht being gone, Frankfurt broke into her house and picked the lock on the trunk, taking back his watch and 50 more dollars besides. A witness saw him entering Mrs. Frecht's, and two police officers arrested him at his home. He was remanded to jail until the August term of court, but when August came around, the court declined to prosecute. In the spring and early summer of 1876, John Frankfurt and his son-in-law, Charles Gibson, went on a bit of a horse-thieving spree. On April 15th, Jacob Shirk of Bird in Hand had a horse stolen. His horse was later discovered at the 17-mile house along the Frederick Road near West Friendship in Howard County, Maryland. Shirk later came to the Maryland Tavern and identified the horse as being his. Jacob Shanebrook at the tavern said that he couldn't absolutely swear that John Frankford was the man who came there and traded the horse for another horse and $20, but he thought so. A Mr. Foster, also at the tavern, testified to having seen Frankford at the same time and could identify him. A horse and saddle was stolen from the home of Henry Brackbill in Paradise. A buggy was stolen from J.N. Wood down the road, and Brackbill's saddle was found discarded nearby. On July 10th, Israel Scarf, who ran a roadside inn near Greenwood in Baltimore County, Maryland, said that two men who he later identified as John Frankfurt and Charles Gibson came to his hotel. Frankfurt tried to sell him the horse, which was almost certainly the same one he'd gotten from Jacob Shanebrook at the 17-mile house. I'm not certain if Scarf purchased the horse or not. Israel Scarf later had his horse stolen on July 24th. He later blamed Frankfurt for this, 
though the timing doesn't quite work out, as he should have been in Cleveland with Charles Gibson at the time. Joseph Ross of Conowingo said he saw the horse being ridden across the bridge there and followed. He lost track of it around Rising Sun and thought the thief was headed for Philadelphia. On the night of July 18th, a horse was stolen from Reuben A. Bear on the outskirts of Lancaster. On July 25th, horses identified as Reuben Bears and James Boyd's were found in Cleveland, Ohio in the possession of a Mr. Wilbur. Wilbur put the police on the trail of the two men who had sold him the horses, two men that he knew as John Klein and James Dunn, but who were actually John Frankfurt and Charles Gibson. The two were arrested by Detective George Goodrich on August 17th. Sorry, that's August 7th. But evidence that the two men had actually been the ones to steal the horses was lacking, and they were released. Then they apparently made their way back to Lancaster County, where, on August 19th, a horse was stolen from James Boyd of Drewmore Township. A buggy was likewise stolen from a Mr. Geiger, also of Drewmore. Constable Philip Baker, who had arrested John Frankfurt on many occasions, had suspicions that Frankfurt and Gibson were stealing property in Lancaster County and going to Baltimore to sell them. Acting on these suspicions, he sent photographs of Frankfurt and Gibson to Baltimore. On the morning of August 25th, he received word that the two thieves were located, still having in their possession both the horse and the buggy. Frankford managed to evade the officers, with Gibson being arrested. Baker retrieved the necessary extradition papers and set off for Baltimore. Gibson was tried in Lancaster on November 22nd and 23rd. Tried on five counts, those of the robberies of Jacob Shirk, two separate counts stemming from the Reuben Bear robbery, James Boyd, and Mr. Geiger. The Shirk case was later dismissed, however, as Shirk never showed up for court. He was sentenced to two years for each count, making for a total of eight years. On July 25, 1878, Charles Gibson escaped from prison in the company of another thief named Forrest Armstead, only to be recaptured in Pittsburgh on September 6th. After return to prison, he escaped again on July 14, 1879, along with Alonzo Hambright, the brother of Samuel mentioned earlier, and Charles, Gil Charles Goodman. This time he remained free for a while, being recaptured in September of 1880 in Greensburg, where he was on trial under the alias Alexander Williams. But back in 1877, when Gibson was convicted, Frankford was still on the run, and remained so for quite a while. He was finally arrested on June 18, 1877 in Coatesville. Police Chief Sprecher of Lancaster had been on the lookout for the fugitive, and on that day had seen Frankford's wife and children all boarding a train car. Acting on suspicion, he followed, and the train made its way to Coatesville. There he saw John Frankford, apparently his family was there to visit. When he saw him, he hurriedly got off the train and arrested the man. Frankford was held at Lancaster County Prison awaiting his trial. One of the guards gave sarcastic answers to the press, commenting on Frankford's propensity for escaping prison. When asked how long he was to be held, the guard held, the guard replied, as long as I can. When asked about what was to be done with him, the guard replied, I think they'll try to arrest him again, alluding to the fact that he's going to escape and do something else and get himself arrested again. His trial began on August 24, 1877. 
The prosecution brought out most of the facts presented above. As to John Frankfurt's defense, he claimed that on April 15th and 16th, 1876, he was at home in Lancaster attending to one of his daughters who was sick. He knew nothing of the shirk theft and had never been at the 17-mile house. His presence in Lancaster on those two dates was, corroborate, was corroborated by his sister Fiona, whose husband was the brother of Hugh Cosgrove, arrested with Frankfurt early on, who said that John had been living at her house in, until May of 1876. His daughter Margaret and her husband, William Rittenhouse, both corrab- corroborated this as well, as did Anna Frankfurt and his brother Miles. In fact, as he was to claim later, he had not left the city until July 15th, when he moved to Baltimore. Again, this was corroborated by both his wife Anna and his brother Miles. John's other daughter, Ellen Gibson, wife of Charles Gibson, said that the man seen with her husband wasn't her father, but a man named Swartzwelder Klein. But the jury wasn't convinced by Frankford's pleas and sentenced him to 19 years in Lancaster County Prison. He was put in a newly modified iron cell. On May 13, 1880, he attempted to escape. A guard named Murr, hearing a noise, went to Frankford's cell. Frankford got up off the floor and cordially greeted the guard, who, looking around to see what was taking place, noticed that Frankford had been attempting to enlarge a small air vent near the floor. This vent would have led to the basement. Frankford was moved to another cell. On August 3rd, he was being moved again to another cell, and when the guards came to escort him to his new lodgings, he put on his hat and asked if he could bring his things. The guards discovered that within the lining of his hat was a knife, in a bar of soap was a small hammer, and in a loaf of bread was both a file and a knife. On August, 1880, on August 7th, 1881, there was a mass breakout attempt at the Lancaster prison, led by Abe, Ike, and Joe Buzzard, leaders of an infamous Lancaster County gang of robbers. Also escaping were several other thieves, Paul Quigley, Jacob Weaver, John Lippincott, Charles Albright, and finally Charles Gibson. The prisoners were in five adjoining cells and managed to cut passages in the walls between them. They had begun cutting another hole out into the prison yard, but weren't yet through when discovered. It was speculated that the inmates could have seized the prison had they escaped. On November 28, 1881, John Frankford, in solitary confinement in a cell across the hall from the ones that were part of the breakout attempt, made his own breakout attempt. He relaunched a scheme similar to his May 1880 attempt, cutting away some of the iron adjacent to the ventilation shaft and removing some bricks around it. From there, he advanced through the cellar, made his way past a wall, and was engaged in clearing out another ventilation shaft when a stone came loose, alerting a guard named Reed. Frankford lay low, and once he thought things quieted down, poked his head up. Guard John Wise was down below and saw him. He fired his gun, full of birdshot, hitting the escapee who later proved to be John Frankford. It was soon determined that the wounds weren't life-threatening, and most of the shot was removed. One wound was near his eye, though, and though the eye was saved, it was useless. On May 24, 1882, Frankford was involved in yet another breakout attempt, this one successful. The mass breakout saw several men involved in the abortive attempt nearly a year before taking part, 
with Abe and Ike Buzzard, John Lippincott, and Paul Quigley again escaping. Joining them besides were John Frankford, Andrew Ehrman, Joseph Groff, Morris Bricker, George McAlpine, and Michael Lentz. The men, employed as cigar makers, managed to chisel their way through a brick wall and escape into an ice house, from whence they could make their way through a window into the, into the prison yard. A rope made of bed sheets, one of the most stereotypical tools used in a jail escape, afforded them a way over the prison walls, and all this in mid-afternoon. Charles Gibson's old compatriot Alonzo Hambright, who had also made an escape attempt with Frankfurt the year before, was also present in the cigar-making shop, but didn't join the others since he thought this mass breakout was too risky for daytime. He said that the hole was made in only about three hours, but he also thought that John Frankfurt himself was a bit hesitant about going. I'm sure he was. I mean, after all, he had gotten shot in the face on his last escaped attempt. Michael Conover, Johnny Brock, and Isaac Zimmerman, all at the, at the county poor farm nearby, saw the gang of men escaping. Other witnesses told investigators the men were seen making their way down Rockland Street and over the factory bridge, where the Lincoln Highway crosses the Conestoga River southeast of Lancaster. Once across here, they seemed to have separated, three going south toward Willow Street, while others struck out in the direction of Strasburg. These seemed to have included Abe and Ike Buzzard, at least. Of the ten who escaped, Joseph Groff was quickly captured, trying to board a freight train in Lancaster. The three who went south towards Peckway were believed to be John Frankford, Morris Bricker, and George McAlpine. They were tracked to an old schoolhouse near Rawlinsville, where they had apparently spent the night, and then to the home of Charles Dossman, and then from there to McCall's Ferry. Dossman is referred to as being Frankford's son-in-law, but I doubt this. While Ellen, the daughter who had been married to Charles Gibson, had divorced him and remarried, she was living in Philadelphia with her new husband. According to Frankford, the men started for Baltimore. He wasn't too specific on the details. Besides Baltimore, he had spent a good deal of time in Philadelphia. He robbed the Catholic Church in Mount Washington, Baltimore County, was jailed in Towson, and escaped prison there on Christmas Eve, 1882. On January 1st, 1883, by which time all of his compatriots in the breakout had been recaptured, he stole a horse from David Park in Parksburg back in Pennsylvania. He also stole two horses from Reading, one in Philadelphia, one from William Davis of Newton Square, and one from P.W. Lobb of Berwyn. Then he made the poor choice of stealing two horses from Hemphill Brothers, a company in Westchester, and a company which just so happened to count a sheriff's deputy, William Hemphill, as an employee. Hemphill arrested Frankford, who had sold David Park's horse in Philadelphia. Though the so-called William Johnson had been identified as John Frankford by Chester County authorities, having been sent a photograph of the man, and also having been identified by authorities from Lancaster, it was determined that he would only be released and sent back after he was tried for the 16 counts he had against him in Chester County. He didn't stand trial for these until August of 1883, but while he was awaiting trial, he attempted escape from prison again. This time, he removed iron plates from the wall of his cell, and a neighbor, J. Lewis Robinson, did the same. This done, those two cut through the wall. 
Once Frankford was in Robinson's cell, the two worked their way through the ceiling and made their way into the cell of Clarence A. Dunn. Then the three cut their way through the ceiling and out onto the roof. They were recaptured in Williston Township. In all, of the 16 counts he was charged with, he was found guilty of 13. On August 20th, however, a Chester County judge ruled that Frankford should be sent back to Lancaster to serve the rest of his sentence there. As the court wrote in its opinion, If we should now sentence the prisoner, we would in effect nullify the action of the Lancaster County Court. This, comedy, as well as of regard to the interest of the Commonwealth, forbids. We cannot at this time properly pass judgment upon the prisoner for the offenses of which he has just been convicted, inasmuch as our sentence must be to a different prison from that to which his sentence consigns him. And we will, therefore, suspend judgment until the expiration of his term of imprisonment in the prison of Lancaster County. He was returned to Lancaster on August 23rd. Now, and this is where Dossman might come in. In addition to anything else, John Frankford seems to have also been a bigamist. There's several mentions in September of 1883 of Salome Frankford seeking a divorce from John Frankford. And lest it be thought a different John Frankford is meant, the Lancaster papers specify the horse thief now in the county prison. It's said the divorce was sought on the ground of desertion and his conviction of a high crime. They can't mean Anna Frankford, because while she did eventually divorce her husband and remarry, that wasn't until 1889. And there's the mention that's made quite often of his having had young daughters, the context making them seem only children. But his two daughters with Anna were in their 20s, and in fact both were already married. When Frankford was brought back to Lancaster, he was placed in cell 7, the cell from which he had escaped when shot by John Wise two years before, and a cell which had been especially made for the frequent escapee, it supposedly being escape-proof. He complained loudly about the cell, saying that it was too cold and damp, and he would rather be moved to a cell on the upper tier of the prison. But the prison authorities, it was written, questioning his motives, will leave him where he is. That's probably a good call. Accounts from Chester County would have it that Frankford was on death's door, but a reporter who visited him in Lancaster wrote that, quote, he does not look as broken in health as we might have been led to believe from the accounts of his physical condition. He certainly is not as stout as he was when we last saw him, but he looks anything but a dying man. On the evening of October 11th, the prison was left in the charge of only two men, Amos Lutz and Edward Sample. In something that would never happen nowadays, Sample was in the cell of William Wider getting a haircut, and only Lutz was in the corridor. The frequently jailed buzzards were all three in prison there at the time. Ike Buzzard called to Lutz and asked him to take a canary to his brother Abe. Lutz opened Ike's cell to get the bird and, in a monumentally stupid move, turned his back on the open cell door to give it to Abe. Ike rushed forward, pushing Lutz into the cell with his brother and shutting the door. Both guards now locked in cells, Sample and Wider's and Lutz and Abe's. He got the keys and went around the place unlocking cells and letting inmates free. One of these was John Frankford, who had gotten a large knife and threatened to kill another inmate named Frank Blair. After gathering 11 inmates, he went to Abe's cell, unlocked it, and got his brother out while leaving the guard locked in. 
Several of the new escapees were names that had come up before in this episode. Besides the two buzzards, they were John Frankford, George Brimmer, John Wirtz, Alexander Lehman, Morris Bricker, Joe Groff, William Clark, Edward Beck, George Watkins, and John Clifford. Later that night, nine men, presumed to be some of the prisoners, were headed north toward Ephrata. The area around Ephrata was a frequent haunt of the buzzards. W.B. Skiles of Paradise thought he saw John Frankford, along with another man, down that way. He seems to have loitered in the area. On October 24th, two men believed to be Frankford and another one of the prisoners were seen near Russellville in Chester County, and later that day in Edenton, just up the road. A horse and a wagon were stolen from Enoch Leadham of Westchester and tracked to a stable in Philadelphia. The proprietor of the stable identified a photograph of John Frankford as the man who sold him. Little was heard of Frankford for the next several months. In March of 1884, a man was arrested in Carlisle, and a Lancaster man named J.W. Sowers identified him as John Frankford. However, it proved to be not the missing thief, but a man named John Toohey, who did bear some resemblance to him. Toohey took the whole thing as, so as a sign of some conspiracy to charge him with... something. The son of Martin Klein of Akron, Ohio, said to be a half-brother of the Frankfords, said that John had died at his father's house on October 22, 1884. He claimed that the death took place after a nine-week illness, resulting from the eye wound that he had suffered in 1881. Frankford's oldest daughter, Margaret Rittenhouse, spoke to a reporter on July 9th. In October, a man came here and asked for something to eat. While sitting at the table, he said, Would you be offended if I asked you a question? I said no, and he asked me if I was not John Frankford's daughter. I said I was, and then he told me that my father was dead. There have been stories of his death, and I do not like to think him dead. But as he has always left, my sis left myself or my sister know where he is, and ha has not now written to either of us for over a year, I fear the worst, although hoping for the best. She said that she had last seen her father on November 13, 1883, only a few weeks after the mass breakout. Three days later, she received a letter from him stating that he was going to Ohio. But as should surprise no one, the entire story was a fabrication, possibly one John himself had a hand in helping spread. After all, a nine-weeks illness culminating in death on October 22nd would mean that he was at Martin Klein's dying at the time that, he, that it's known he was still in Lancaster County Prison. He was finally recaptured on November 21st, 1885, at which time he was staying in Philadelphia. John McGinty, who had known Frankford during one of his forays in Chester County, saw him at a horse auction at the Herkness Bazaar at 9th and Sansom Streets and turned him in. After going to Philadelphia after the October 1883 escape, he went to St. Louis, Missouri, and then wandered around the Midwest for a while, staying in Cincinnati for a time, and then making his way to Pittsburgh. Then he went to Baltimore, and then Richmond, afterwards making his way back to Philadelphia. According to him, he was actually in Lancaster at the time the reporter spoke with Margaret Rittenhouse, and in fact was staying at her house. But Christmas 1885 
was not to be a happy one for John Frankfurt. On December 11th, he, along with Abe and Ike Buzzard, John Lippincott, James Clifford, and George Brimmer, were sentenced to Eastern State Penitentiary. Frankfurt was sentenced to serve out the 14 years remaining on his sentence, plus an additional year and a half. Plus, after that, you had whatever he was going to be charged with from the chest from all the Chester County robberies. So, he had a long time in jail. And it is with this sentencing that John Frankfurt's three-decade-long career as a criminal came to an end. The story of John Frankfurt, however, did not. This part of the story is somewhat well-known, with there being occasional podcast episodes and articles written about it. He was a model prisoner at Eastern State, well-liked by guards and prisoners alike, and trusted by the prison administration. He did some plumbing work, and helped maintain the prison sewers, and also helped take care of the guard dogs. In 1889, after he had been at the prison for several years, Anna Frankfurt divorced her husband, who she really hadn't seen for years. In 1892, his his daughter Margaret Rittenhouse visited for the last time. The two were still on good terms and continued to write, though. But on her final visit, Frankfurt showed showed his daughter his cell. She asked him how he liked it there, and rather ominously, he said, Maggie, your life's not your own here. Whether that was a simple description of what life was like in a prison, or whether it was more ominous, who can say? At some point in the weeks before his death, he was bitten by one of the dogs. Two of the bloodhounds had begun acting aggressively toward each other, and when John attempted to intervene, he was bitten. The wound was cleaned and received two stitches. How exactly the word got out, I'm not sure, but someone got wind of the dog bite story, and it was reported for a time that he had died from a blood infection from the bite. On January 20th, 1896, Margaret and her husband received a telegram from Warden Michael J. Cassidy, that Frankfurt was likely near death. By the time the Rittenhouses got to Philadelphia, about five hours later, John was dead. They were stopped at the gate by a watchman who summoned Dr. John Bacon, the prison surgeon. He explained to them that John had died from complications from surgery for a strangulated hernia, an injury he had received in 1883 when escaping from the jail in Westchester. But they, but they couldn't come get the body tonight. The guard dogs had already been let out, and it would really be just easier if they came back during the day. But when they returned the next day, they were again refused, this time being told that they needed to have an undertaker come pick up the body. William Adams picked up the body and brought it back to the offices of Titlow Brothers. There was a slight bruise on the forehead of Frankfurt's corpse between his eyes. There were, of course, the expectant incisions in the abdomen due to surgery, but it was also apparent a full post-mortem had been conducted without the family's knowledge. Bits of entrails protruded through the hastily stitched incisions, and most obvious was a large cut that indicated that his skull had been opened and then the scalp stitched back together again. According to William Rittenhouse, who had accompanied the body to the mortuary, his intestines, heart, and brain were missing. Overall, there was, to quote one Philadelphia paper, an utter violation of the dead man's rights, and an utter disregard of the rights and sensibilities of the living. Margaret Rittenhouse said she was told by Dr. Bacon that the brain had been removed to determine cause of death. 
John Frankford was buried on January 22nd in Lancaster Cemetery. On April 27th, Margaret Rittenhouse was approached by a lawyer named Kennedy asking for an affidavit about her father's death. He also collected statements from numerous other witnesses. He said these were for an investigation. Philadelphia Judge James Gay Gordon, owing to the number of insane prisoners being shipped from Eastern State to Norristown State Hospital, and in particular the physical condition of an unnamed inmate sent to Norristown on December 2, 1896, who seemed to have also been beaten, appointed a number of inspectors who looked for signs of madness in the prisoners. They found five. These findings eventually led him to suspect Warden Cassidy of cruelty. During his investigations, Gordon seized on the case of John Frankford, which he used as one more example of the pitiful conditions he claimed were rampant at the prison. The lawyer Kennedy, meanwhile, proved eventually to have been G.C. Kennedy, who had been running for district attorney back in Lancaster, but who was then found to have been embezzling money from his clients. He was disbarred in 1895, committed himself to an, to an asylum, and was acquitted of the embezzlement charges due to his insanity defense. He later tried to get himself reinstated as a lawyer and failed. It's from Gordon's hearings that the more gory details come. More specifically, they come from a fellow in inmate named Alexander Libesley, also from Lancaster, and serving life in Eastern State for the stabbing death of George Ponce in 1887. He said he was loitering around the mortuary and saw Dr. Bacon at work on Frankfurt's corpse. They cut Frankfurt up like a hog, he said. Later he saw Dr. Bacon with a bucket full of entrails, and he put the brain in the snow outside, presumably to clean it. Gordon finally got Dr. Bacon to admit to taking the brain, quote, because John Frankfurt was a typical criminal, and I wanted the brain for scientific purposes. The investigation soon became personal, with Gordon condemning the prison inspectors as complicit in any wrongdoing. He supposedly had four witnesses who saw John Frankfurt being beaten prior to death, but he wouldn't call any of these witnesses to testify. One of the inspectors, James Biddle, eventually asked him, As a judge, you're, you are an official visitor and have a right to investigate. But was not your action in taking a commission of five men going from cell to cell to secure complaints from convicts illegal? Gordon's charges were disregarded, and as Gordon went on to become a candidate for governor, I wonder whether he was making these accusations to amass political clout for himself beyond anything else. But with the conclusion and dismissal of Judge Gordon's hearings, this story finally comes to an end. So, why did this topic especially interest me? Miles Frankford, who I mentioned briefly earlier, was my great-great-great-grandfather, making John Frankford some sort of great-uncle, I suppose. And since many of Frankford's associates were relatives, I'm also related to several of them. So I'm related to Hugh Cosgrove, and I'm related to Charles Gibson. By way of a weird coincidence, I'm also related to Samuel and Alonzo Hambright, although on a different branch of the family tree than Frankford. And also, if John Reddy, who escaped Pittsburgh jail with him, with Frankford, was John H. was John H. Jacobs, Frankford's nephew, whose nickname was Reddy, I'm obviously related to him, too. Then by yet another weird coincidence, 
John H. Jacobs, was also one of the insane prisoners in Eastern State, whose apparent ill treatment was highlighted by Judge Gordon. This story is family history as much as anything. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. And photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to an email at ForgottenDarknessPodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Google Map available, marked with the locations of various episodes. There's links to all these pages in the show description as well. So, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.